back to Colossians. Today we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. So go ahead and grab your Bibles or your app. We'll also have the words on the screen here. We're going to read two, we're going to be two verses today. Two verses. These are pivotal verses in this book. And, uh, and hopefully we'll learn a lot from them. So grab your Bibles, chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 6 and 7. We're going to read these out loud. I'm going to cheat and read on the screen because I can't even see the words in my Bible. I haven't got my reading glasses yet. All right, so let's read together. Therefore, as you perceive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to gather as a church today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the inspiration of Scripture, this infallible, authoritative document that you've left us to reveal who you are. Lord, as we gather today, we pray that you would give us ears to hear all that you would have for us individually and as your church. God, give us eyes to see in these two verses that make up one sentence of Paul's exhortation to the church at Colossae. God, would you help us to hear your voice in it and give us something that we need for our own lives today. God, we thank you for the gathering of your church, not just here, but all over Kingstown and Alexandria and pray that you would meet your people. God, that your gospel would be preached, but it also would be heard and received. God, that you would change lives in its hearing. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, check it out, folks. Today we get to a pivotal passage in this Colossians, book of Colossians. Uh, a shift happens here in this section where Paul is, he goes from reminding the Colossians about who Jesus is to giving them some instruction, really some commands about what to do in light of who, who Jesus is. I'll just begin with a little bit of background just to make sure that we're all on the same sheet of music. Now, Paul, Paul is a church planner. He's gone about most of the Roman province, and he's planted all kinds of churches all over. This particular church in Colossae, he did not plant, however. Uh, he's an overseer, and so he's writing to them, and he learned of them through one of his own converts, a guy named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras, we, uh, we come to find out Epaphras is uh, what came to faith through Paul's ministry, primarily in Ephesus. Paul was preaching the gospel there, stayed there for I think about two years, and Epaphras, uh, a native of Colossae, had traveled to Ephesus, and a Gentile had got, gotten converted. And then he so, so became so compassionate about the gospel and about this message that he went back, to his, went back home. He went to Colossae, and he shared all that he knew and all the passion that he had about Jesus through the gospel. And he not only shared it with his own home folk in Colossae, but he is known for really evangelizing that whole region. In this book, we hear of a couple other towns that were influenced by Epaphras and his ministry, Hierapolis and Laodicea, this whole Lycus River Valley, which is present-day north-central Turkey. And so Paul is writing to this church, a group of people that he had not even met, that he really did not know. And up to this point, he's been exhorting them. He's been encouraging them. Uh, Epaphras is, for whatever reason, in Rome with Paul. Paul's in prison. Epaphras is there with them, and he's bringing him a report on how these, this church that was, was formed through the extension of Paul's ministry, how they were doing, how they had heard the gospel, how they were taken, taken a hold of it, and it was bearing fruit. It was growing in their lives. But then, Epaphras also shared with him some, some difficulties of that were going on in this particular church. Primarily, there were men that were coming through and spreading false teaching. They were giving, they were, they were telling the, the church at Colossae that there were things that they hadn't experienced that could be experienced in their lives. And so the, the, the purpose of Paul's message here in this letter really is to set things straight. Okay, he's letting them know. Uh, you know, I'm encouraged by what I hear about you understanding the gospel, but 
I also hear that you're trying to become extra spiritual by, by doing things. And in that, you, you seemingly think that Jesus isn't enough, that you need to add on other stuff on top of the good news of, of Jesus coming and living a perfect life for you and dying in your place for your sin. And so that's what he's doing here in this letter. And so these verses that we're going to read today um, are pivotal from the perspective of Paul stops talking to them in regards to who Jesus is, and he gives them a command. He actually says, all right, so I'm painting a picture of the God that you serve and who you should be in light of him, and now I need you to go do something in light of that. And that's what verse 6 and 7 does for us. So as we jump into the text, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is the first imperative or command that Paul gives to the Colossian church. And what we see unfolding here is Paul's theology of indicative before imperative. And I'll explain this like this. In most of Paul's letters, he would very politely spend some time encouraging his audience. He, did, he does that in the book of Colossians. But then he would remind them of their relationship with Christ, who they were based upon believing in the gospel. And then he would move on to what they should do in light of that. And that really is what he's doing right here in this passion. So he, he uses this word, therefore. All right, y'all have heard this before. You've you heard it from school. You've heard it from your mom, your uh, grandparents. Whenever you see the word, therefore, when you're reading a book, you've got to pause and look and see what it's there for. All right, in this case, Paul is, he's connecting everything that he is going to say to everything that has already been said. And what is he, what is he already said? He's told us who Jesus is. That's what he's done in, first, uh, in the first chapter of Colossians. 15 through 21, I mean, what does he say? He says, this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you see or experience Jesus, you have experienced the one true God. He says, this Jesus, he is the creator and the sustainer of all that you know about your world. He says, this Jesus, he is the head of the church. He's the one controlling the body. When, it, when he moves, all of creation moves along with him. He says, he's preeminent. He's sovereign. He's authoritative. He's higher, bigger than anything that you could ever imagine. He's preeminent. And so Paul right here is saying, in light of him, in light of this Jesus, this Jesus as Lord, you should do something. Specifically, he says, as you've received Jesus the Lord. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is, I mean, how have we received Jesus the Lord? Before I get to that, you ever heard anybody say this phrase? Um, you can get saved um, and receive Jesus as Savior, and then as you grow a little bit, you'll, you'll, Jesus will become your Lord. Y'all heard that? No, I'm the only one that's ever heard that. All right. So when you hear that, when you hear that argument, that persuasive argument, as we talked about last week, don't believe it. That's bad theology. That's bad teaching. When you get Jesus, you get them all. And you're either serving him as Savior and Lord, or you're not really serving him at all. That was just an aside. That's not even in my notes. I just felt like I needed to give you that. Jesus is your Savior. He is your Lord all at the same time. He comes in a complete package. You don't get part of him at first, and then part of him a little bit later. That was an amen right there. <laughs> I appreciated that. Okay, so, you know, when the Colossians would have read this, when they would have read this or heard someone saying this, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, they wouldn't have quite thought of it the way we think of it. And I'm going to tell you how we think of it in just a second. But they would have gone to tradition, the tradition of how they, how they heard and received the gospel. And Paul is assuming some things in this letter, that they, have, they, that they understand the tradition of, of the gospel articulated to them. Okay, And so we have to turn to another book where Paul succinctly lays out what this tradition is. And it's, it's, you've heard it before. You've heard it a lot. It's in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, verse 1 through about 3 or 4. 3 or so, 3 or 4, 5 or so. Okay, and it says, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what's Paul doing here? He's talking about salvation. Okay? He's talking about salvation. How does a person come to faith? This passage says you come to faith by believing the gospel and repenting of your sins. He goes on in chapter 15 to say, For I deliver it to you as of first importance, for I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to, see, he appeared to, he appeared to some people, over 500 people, so they would be witnesses. And Paul is writing this, you know, in that day saying, hey, this isn't a farce. This, this really happened. In fact, the people that witnessed this Jesus who said he was God, that was put on the cross and died, resurrected, he, these people are still alive. You can go ask them and get a firsthand account of all that happened. And so Paul is, this is the tradition that the Colossians would have understood when Paul used this phrase, as you received Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so I want to do an excursus with you just for a few minutes and sort of unpack this. Because we can pass by this and, and you know, think very little of it. He's just talking about the gospel. And I, I, hear, I hear about Jesus dying for my sins you know, on the cross, and, and I'm saved because I believe that. Well, it, it's a little bit more than that. Okay? So here's our excursus. Um, there is, there's a process of wherein you... A person who doesn't know God and doesn't care about God comes to recognize him, sense that you need him, and then finally receive him. And the way theologians would call that, name that process, they would call it the order salutis, the order of salvation. I'm not going to inundate you with a bunch of theology this morning, but I do want you to know why you believe what you believe. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says that there are ten Steps in this order of salvation. I'm going to give you four of them, and I'm going to be quick about it. The, uh, the first would be that you simply, that, that, that God is, is sovereign and that he elects those who will be saved. Okay, we're not going to explain that one. Then there's a gospel call. That means there's an internal thing that draws you to God. Okay, Jesus says in John, no one comes to God the Father unless the Spirit draws them. There has to be something drawing you. And then there's this process called Regeneration. Regeneration is simply this. It speaks of the moment when God, by his grace, awakens those who are spiritually dead and births faith in them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that you might not know. You just weren't walking down the road or running, you know, listening to your iPod, and all of a sudden you had this epiphany. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I'm going to go find God. That's not really how salvation happens. God acts upon you. Okay? He makes himself known. He draws you to himself. And that really is what's happening behind the scenes in your life. And it may be a slow drawing, or it might be just immediate, where you just recognize that you are sinner and you need God. But there is a process to it. And regeneration is one of the most important processes. They're all important. It's one of the most important processes here, Jesus was using this kind of language when he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he goes on to explain, you need, you need the spirit and water to come into the kingdom. What he was saying to Nicodemus is, you need the spirit to give you a new heart. You can't. Can you give yourself a new heart? Well, some of you probably you just rip it out. Yeah, rip it out and put a new one in. That's not what he's talking about. You need a new heart, and you need the cleansing, like the water cleansing a body soaked with dirt. You need the cleansing that comes from forgiveness of sins and, and God uh, forgiving us of those sins. Ezekiel says it like this. He prophesies in Ezekiel 36. This is not going to be on your screen, but the scripture verses Ezekiel 36, 26. He prophesies, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey my rules. And so your heart has to be awakened. It has to be, has to be made to come alive. And we, none of us can do that. 
Your spirit has to be brought to life. Paul says in Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't want to be morbid. Any of y'all ever seen a, a dead body? What, what can a dead body do? Nothing. Paul says, in our sin, the way that we're born, we're born in sin because of Adam's original sin. We can do nothing to, to bring ourselves to God or merit his, his grace and his favor. God has to act upon us. Regeneration is God bringing your soul to life. Paul says it in this way as he continues on in Ephesians 2. He, he gives us salvation. He gives it to us by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's the work of God so that we can't boast. The next part of this order of salvation is conversion. And this is you hearing the gospel and responding to it. And, you know, all of us come, all of us receive the, the gospel differently. Some of you were born in homes where you just heard it. My kids, we do devotions every night, almost every night, and they, they've heard this stuff since they were little babies. My kids all recognized that they were sinners because their parents were disciplining them. And uh, they heard the gospel so much that they came, they, they came to faith in our home. Zoe was sitting at the dinner table. I, I don't know what she was eating, probably some, you know, uh, a carrot or something. And we're talking about Jesus and sin and salvation. And you know, right there in the midst of, you know, eating a carrot or something, uh, you know, I'm asking, well, Zoe, do you know that you're a sinner? This is how it happened in our home. For me, I was 17 years old. I had gone to church all my life, and it didn't dawn on me until I read John for the first time that just going to church didn't mean I was a Christian. For you, it may have been some other means, but conversion happens. Firstly, when God is regenerated, he's turned our dead spirits to life, brought them to life, and that's his sovereign work that does that. And then we hear the gospel and we respond. And what do you respond with? You respond with faith. Faith in the person and work of Jesus, who the Bible says Jesus is, and his work. That he died in your place for your sin. Some articulate the gospel like this. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived in perfect submission to the Father. He lived the perfect life that a holy God demands, but we couldn't and we can't. We still can't. And I will tell you, folks, that's good news. But here's the better news about the gospel. Jesus died the death we deserve. He died in your place for your sin. He's your Savior. You're not. You can't save yourself. He's the satisfier of, of God's wrath in your place because you can't. There's nothing in you that can enable you to do that. Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians. All right, so the next process in the order of salvation is justification, and we're going to end on this one. Justification says, God the judge is declaring you legally not guilty in relationship to his laws. And so God is in his heavenly courtroom. He's got a gavel. He's about to bang it down, and guess what he does? He's got this whole room full of convicts, bad people, and you're one of them. And what you're expecting is for God the judge to... Lower that hammer, bang it on, the, on this table, and say, guilty. But what does he do? He does the impossible, the unthinkable. He says, you're not guilty. God calls the guilty not guilty. Why is that? Because God takes his son, Jesus' righteousness, and he credits to those who don't deserve it. And he takes your unrighteousness and he puts it on Jesus as he stretched his arms out on the cross. And he did that for you. The primary text for this is Romans 3, 23 and 24. You've heard this before. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the part that unfolds this idea of justification and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. And so justification is a gift of God's grace. It's for us. You don't do anything to get justified. You simply reach out a hand and receive it. Receive that beautiful gift of God by his grace. But you, you do have to reach out your hand. The Westminster Confession is a, a Puritan document from the 17th century. It's written by 121 Puritans as the Reformation were unfolding. They're trying to express what they believed as opposed to the, the Church of England, the Catholic 
church at that time. And the Westminster Confession says this about justification. Thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. And so this same language that Paul is using in Colossians 2.6. Receiving, how have you received Christ the Lord? Justification. Receiving Jesus Christ the Lord. So regeneration and justification are both totally the works of God, and you have no part in them. And so Paul, back to Colossians 2 6. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says, So walk in him. And there's the command. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's justification. Am I making that clear? So walk in him. Guess what this is? This is sanctification. That's the next order in the process of, of your salvation. And sanctification is defined like this. It's the ongoing process of shaping and forming your character in obedience to Christ. This is, this is the growth process. This is that thing that happens in you from the point that God regenerates you, makes your spirit alive, until you die. And that could be a long time for some of us. So this whole... This whole span of time, God is continually working on you. He's working on your inside, so it'll show on your outside, so that who you are on the inside matches who you are on the outside, and that's called sanctification. You never really arrive, and that's the hard part. The Holy Spirit is always working on us, renovating you, changing you, um, so that your character is changed. It's God making you a different person. It's God really making you obedient to Jesus and all of us who, because, you know, think about yourself. We're, all, we're disobedient people. And if you don't believe that, go ask your mom. <laughs> I got to keep it real with you. Just go ask her. Was I obedient? Like, no. Now, what am I talking about all this theology? Um, firstly, theology is important. What you believe um, orders how you behave. And I can give you many examples of that. If you don't believe there's a God, you're going be to behave like there's no God. And you're going to do whatever you want. But if you believe there's a God, if you believe something about God, what you believe about him, you're eventually going to act out. And so I'm, hope, I'm prayerfully expressing thoughts about what you should believe about God. That's why we're looking at this theology. Specifically, though, this is what Paul is talking about. The underlying assumption here in this order of salvation is what he says in these words, um, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. He's assuming this complex line of thought theologically that they, the Colossians had gotten this. And basically he's talking about this is how the gospel saves you. And at this point in this text, he's getting ready to segue into this idea of 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 a metaphor explaining how that same gospel not just saves you and, and gives you an opportunity to, to exist eternally with Jesus in a new heaven and new earth, but how that gospel also changes you. One way to say this is the faith that justifies you is also the faith that sanctifies you. The faith that justifies you is also the faith that sanctifies you. This is an important point because all of us want to grow. Whether you admit it or not, you want, to, you want to change. In fact, I would beg to say that all of us in here can think of things in our character, in our attitude, and, and sin patterns that we have, and habits, habits that you are thinking about, possibly doing before you came here, going to do when you get out of here, right now that you want, you want them to change. There are probably people in your life that know character traits and attitudes and habits and sin patterns in your life. My wife just walked in the room. That's why I'm thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep it real. All right, so there are things about you that you want to change, and the people in your life, they wanted to change too. But the fact is, we can't change ourselves, folks. We want to do it. There are things we can do, but we can't white knuckle true change and make it last and make it such that we would have a, you know, a modicum of joy and what we do. And this is really what Paul is, is getting at. He's getting at this idea of change. And really, when you think about how you, how you get saved and then how your life unfolds after that, this is really how it happens. All right, so we, get, we, we come to faith in Jesus. We, we, we come to this point where we really do believe what the, what the Bible says about him is true, and we want to follow him. 
And, you know, we start reading our Bible. Man, we just, oh, this Jesus, he is awesome. We're reading the Bible all the time. We're praying. We start going maybe to Bible studies. Um, we start worshiping. All of these great things are happening in terms of our faith. And we feel, we sense, we even see ourselves growing. Isn't that a cool thing? But then this is what happens to all of us. And it might be three months for you. It might be a year down the road. It might even be, you might be, you might be just extra special. It might be for you five years before you stop growing. But all of us hit this block. It's like, I can't get past this. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. Uh, I'm even fasting. And you, I'm, it takes a lot for me to fast. All right, I'm fasting and nothing is happening. We all get stuck. And I would tell you, I would suggest to you two things happen when you get stuck. One of the first, one of the things that might happen to you, depending on your personality type, is you become introspective and it, you really don't do anything, but you just wallow in the despair of your life not changing the way you want it to change. And you just, it's just like a, an amoebic existence. But there's some of you that are less introspective. I'm one of these types. And you feel like you got to do something. I just got to go do something to, to make myself change. Surely there's something that I'm not doing that I should be doing that's going to invoke change in my life. And so this is the way it works out. And some of y'all like this. God bless you, introspective people. But it's those of us who try to work this out that I'm really, really concerned about because that's the kind of person that I am. And you'll do stuff like this. You say, well, maybe if I read this book or if I go to this conference, that, that, that'll make it, that's the key to making change. Or maybe if I, uh, maybe if I change churches or I go to this community group, that's going to that's gonna make it work for me. Or some of you are looking for a super spiritual experience. And so well, maybe if I, uh, if I seek to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, I'm going to go to a charismatic church. All right, maybe that'll make it work. You're, you're looking for all these things externally that are going to make the change happen in you, possibly like it was before when you, you were doing all these things, these spiritual things, and life was just, it was bubbling up. You had, you were, you had joy as you served. And you saw change from the inside out. And so, really, I, I think this is what was going on with the Colossians. This is like, we don't know, but this is likely what was going on with them. They were becoming convinced that these false teachers, they might be right. We're stuck. We're trying to figure out what we should be doing uh, so that our growth continues, so we don't become stagnant in our faith. And they're suggesting that we perform this human ritual, that we... Uh, pick up these traditions that we worship the angels who are you know, right now a little bit higher than we are that we that we submit ourselves to asceticism. Y'all know what that is? Asceticism we'll see that later in, in chapter 2 that's like beating yourself and cutting yourself or like preventing yourself from doing stuff so that you'll have a higher spiritual experience. We we humans will do anything to you know to, to make ourselves feel right and that's what the Colossians we're doing, and unfortunately, we do it too. And this is my real concern for, for many of us, is that we get to the point that we feel like we're, we're stuck, and we're either introspective or we're, uh, we're solution-seeking, and in those places, we feel like we're not a good Christian because we're not, we don't feel change. We don't see change. And I think Paul's word for us in these few words, this is what he wants us to see. The faith that justifies you is the faith that sanctifies you. Those are simple words, but they're profound. They're profound for me. But they're profound for you as well. And this is what he's, this is all he's saying in Colossians 2.6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The faith that justifies you, the faith that made you a Christian, you believing in Jesus and crucified, is also the same faith that grows you. Now, Paul describes the Christian life, this idea of sanctification as a walk. He couldn't have used a more appropriate word than walk, because what all, what we, all of us in this room, except for Will, are walking. Will, Will scooting along. <laughs> I'm sorry, Will, I had to do it. And for the Colossians, it was the perfect metaphor to use. Why? Because their, motor their, their sole mode of transportation for these common people was walking. 
What do you think about when you, when you hear the word walk? I think about a journey. We're, we're all on a journey from point A to point B. You're somewhere along this, you know, uh, Blake and Kay's baby, she's just a little bit beyond point A, and she's got a long way to go. Uh, many of y'all don't even know that the transit, our church was born out of this same idea of journey. My wife and I, two and a half years ago, were coming back from a, a church planning conference, and this, this was it. We had gone, our pastor in North Carolina had sent us, he said, go to a conference, Pray about it. Y'all come back, and if you come back and, and say this is it, you need to plant, God is speaking to you, then we're going to set you on this trajectory to go plant a church. So we went to this church planting conference, and, you know, God spoke. I mean, we, we knew we were supposed to go and plant a church. Now, we didn't know where or how or any of that stuff. So we experienced this, you know, just being around it's dangerous being around me because if you're around a church planner, you get infected with this virus of, of wanting to go, you know, expand God's kingdom to church planning. Which that's what I'm hoping it's going to happen with some of you. <laughs> Jesus, make it happen right here in front of me. Amen. It's going to happen. I can already see the church planners among you. So we're coming back from Georgia, going home. And uh, my wife brings this pad out. You know, she's the thinker of the two of us. So she takes this pad out and I start brainstorming about names for our church. This church that we, it's like way down the road. And uh, she said, what do you think about when you think of church? We keep calling all these names. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I always use this phrase, life's a journey. Life is a journey. We're, we're in some continuum from point A to point B. Um, uh, life's, uh, you know, it's, it's just all this, we're, we're moving Okay, God is doing something in us. It's the sanctification process is what I was thinking about. And we looked up the word journey. I wanted to call the church journey, but when you Google journey, there's like thousands of journey <laughs> churches in the world. I said, well, we can't be one of a thousand. And so we looked up a synonym. Synonyms for journey, transit, in transit. That's, that's the origin of your church, folks. <laughs> I know you thought it was something deep, right? <laughs> we got a metro system here in D.C. Ain't nothing to do with that. It's, Life's a journey. That's where this idea of transit comes from. I don't know. I just threw that in. I'm going to throw in another thing. A lot of y'all, you're, you're somewhere in this continuum of point A to point B, and, you know, this is somewhere in that you get saved, and you have this goal of getting to B. I would tell you, your B is not God's B. In fact, God is not taking you to B. It's, he's not. He's taking you to B prime. <laughs> That's going to save a lot of you some heartache and pain. Because what you see as the, the path that God is leading you on and where he's taking you to is not what he's doing. And so your, your goal in life, your chief aim should be discern what God is doing in the moment and follow. And so when you get to B, know that that's not the end. He's going to, he's going to redirect you to B prime. That was for free. You don't even have to pay me for that one. <laughs> so Paul is equating sanctification to a journey. A journey. It's a journey that begins in regeneration, but it takes the rest of your life to get to the destination. Honestly, the destination doesn't happen until you die. They put your, your, your body in the ground. Your soul goes up to be with the Lord, and then at Jesus' second coming, he's going to come, and the last part of this order of salvation is glorification. That's where you, we're resurrected, we get new bodies, we go to the new heavens and new earth, and we're there with Jesus forever. And so in verse 7, Paul says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Four, four important words here that Paul uses to unfold, unpack this, this picture of me walking along the journey of my life as God is changing me, conforming me, making me to reflect more the image of Jesus and be more obedient to him. He says, rooted up, rooted, built up, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. We're going to look at those words real quick. Another way of, of looking at this, he's unpacking this idea of sanctification. So first thing, our sanctification is rooted in Jesus. Paul starts with an agricultural metaphor. 
And what you should see, I think you should picture a seed that's put in the ground. It's watered, maybe giving it a little bit of nutrients. And if you take care of it rightly, actually, you don't even have to really take care of it. Put a seed in the ground and see what happens. It's, it's going to start germinating. And what I think happens, because I'm not an agriculturalist, I don't grow anything, honestly. I just eat. <laughs> um, but uh, out of that seed comes the, 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 the beginning of a root system. And that root, that, those little roots out of the seed starts attaching to parts of the ground. It starts anchoring itself to the soil underneath. And it goes up and sideways and down trying to find a water source so that it can provide nourishment and nutriment to the rest of the plant as it's going up. So you got this root system going down trying to find a water source and nourishment for the plant so that the rest of it can push up out of the ground and we see it. The most interesting part, I think the most important part, of this idea of being rooted in Jesus is that all the, all the foundational stuff happens below the ground. You never even see it. So Paul is saying, there's all this stuff going on in your life where you're rooted in Jesus that you have no idea is happening. You don't see it, but y'all are y'all smart enough and you're old enough to know everything, you don't see everything that's happening. And that's probably a good thing. And one of the things that's happening here is Jesus is, we're being rooted in him, and much of it we don't see. And that is the foundational part of this idea of sanctification. And so I would say regardless of what your former life looked like, regardless of what you're going through now, your identity is rooted in the unchanging, uncomparable grace of Jesus. Paul is helping us to see that. Your security is in this idea of being rooted in Jesus. This is your strength when you're stuck in self-absorption and introspection or when you're going out solution-seeking, trying to find all these things to do to change your life like I sometimes do. Paul is saying, don't be, don't be disappointed in the things that you do. Rather know that you're rooted in Jesus. Our foundation is in him. And that's where your fruit comes from. Think about it. If you're a tree and you're not rooted, you're not going to produce any good fruit. I like what Jeremiah says. He prophesies in Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when he comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear, bear fruit. Secondly, Paul says our sanctification is built up in Jesus. And so he's mixing metaphors. He's, he's taking this idea of an agricultural, you know, a plant, and then he adds in an architectural metaphor. Paul does that. Okay? But basically he's telling us that you're, 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 you've got a good foundation, and now you can be built up. I mean, you can go as high as, high as you want, but you can't go high if your foundation is weak. Being built up implies that believers are still under construction and not yet a finished Product. He says, Paul says it like this in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you to will uh, for his good pleasure. God is doing this work in you that you might glorify him. Thirdly, he says, our sanctification is established in the faith. Now, this is likely a legal term. A legal term with the thought that something is being validated or guaranteed. And so... This is how I think of this. God is not only at work in you, he's confirming the work that he's doing. He's establishing your faith. And so as you receive Jesus, how do you receive Jesus? We receive him by faith. That's justification. As we walk in him through the sanctification process, how should you walk? You should walk as having already been rooted. You should walk as if knowing that God is building you up and establishing you. And again, I think he's, he's saying God is confirming this. God has bound himself to me and you, formally pledging himself to, to your growth in the grace through Jesus. I think the best part about this last part in verse 7, these words that he's using, is I'm not, I'm not going to Greek out on you. But if you know a little bit of Greek, you see what he's saying. He's using the, 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 
the passive tense of these participles, participle being uh, a word that has both uh, verb and adjective characteristics. That's what rooted up, built up, established in the faith, abounding. Those are participles. For those, that was an English lesson for y'all. Um, don't worry. I didn't get this in high school either. I didn't even get. Well, I didn't even. I had to relearn English when I took Greek. Isn't that it's just it's a shame? I had to relearn my own language when I studied Greek. And so the way Paul is using these participles gives us the idea of what of the process that God has taken us through. And so the word "rooted up" is in the perfect passive. And so he's saying this event of being rooted in Jesus happened in the past, but it continues on into the future. Jesus has, we've been rooted in Jesus, but it didn't just stop. That foundation is continually being sturdy and being, being girded so that, our, so that our foundation is strong and we can bear good fruit. Mm-hmm. And then these other words, built up, established, abounding in thanksgiving, these are present tense. He says these are ongoing. You are being built up. You have been rooted, and that's still going on. On top of that, you've been built up. You've been established in your faith, and you have the opportunity to abound in thanksgiving. That's where he goes lastly. He says that we have the opportunity to go to be, um, to abound in thanksgiving. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving is what the latter half of chapter 2, verse 7 says. And when I think about this, this is what I think. Um, what's supposed to be happening in our sanctification process is that we're overfilled with joy for all the ways God is working in our lives. And so how do you know that despite whatever it looks like on the outside, your life might be tough, you might be doing all the right things, praying, fasting, reading your Bible, telling people about Jesus, but you just feel like nothing's changing. Paul says, you know it's working when despite what it feels like and what it looks like, you have a heart that's thankful. Lord, make us thankful people. I want you to be thankful. I want to die and have my family put on my tombstone because this, I'm just confessing right here to y'all, all right? Hang on. That he wasn't grouchy. He wasn't stingy. Those, I can be like that. I just, I can't. I need Jesus, guys. Jeff was thankful. He was thankful for the grace of God in his life. We saw it. Life wasn't perfect, but we saw a thankful heart because he knew he was rooted in Jesus, that he was being built up, and that he was established in his faith. And I want that for you, too. All right, so let's land this plane. I've got a few implications for you guys. What should we be thinking about this? The first is... We've talked about this before. Indicative before imperative. There's several ways to say this, but the message of the New Testament, especially in Paul's theology, but I would even go back to all the Old Testament. And God, as God unfolds his covenant plan for the people of God, is that God shows us who he is, and then he tells us who we are in him before he tells us to do anything. That's Paul's pattern here. So, Paul wants us to know you're children of God, you're beloved, you're you're not an orphan, you're adopted, you're a son, based on who Jesus is, this preeminent one who you put your faith in, and who he's called you to be. He's called you to be a friend. Act like it. And then he's going to, in chapter 2, he's going to, you know, fuss at him a little bit, stop, stop worshiping all this crazy stuff, and trust in Jesus. And then he's going to give us some practical guidance for our families, husbands and wives, being with kids, you know, workers and all that stuff. So that's what Paul's going in his letter. The second thing is the faith that justifies is also the faith that sanctifies. The faith that justifies is also the faith that sanctifies or, as you've heard me say before, is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is what brings you to God. The gospel is also what grows you up. You know, Paul hasn't said the word gospel in this, in this little passage, but he's talking about the gospel. We receive Jesus the Lord by believing the gospel and repenting of our sins. Here's this cool quote by Martin Luther. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. 
Most necessarily, it's all that we know. This article is uh, most necessarily it is that we know this article well. He's saying you got to know the gospel. That we teach it to others and beat it into our heads continually. That doesn't sound too pretty. We need the gospel beat into our heads. And woe is Jeff if he doesn't come and stand in this pulpit and say the word gospel and help you to understand it in a new light every week. That's, God help me to explain the gospel. I pray that all the time. Help me to say it in a way they get it. And Luther is saying the gospel is important. It's a chief among all doctrines. And if you don't get it, you're not quite living. And so you got to beat it into your thick heads because we have thick heads. You know, Martin Luther was a reformer. Uh, he, I would say that he was uh, most responsible for the, the beginning of the Protestant Revolution, uh, Revolution. Protestant Reformation. It was a revolution. Changed the way we do church. And as a, as a reformer, he came up with these treatises, 95 theses uh, that, that differentiated what he read in Scripture that Christians should be doing with uh, the current church, the Catholic Church, the Church of England. And among the, the first of these theses was this idea of all of life is of repentance. All of life is of repentance. And this is what he meant by that. He said, if you're going to experience the ongoing transformation, uh, transformative power of the gospel in your life, you have to be continually repenting and believing the gospel. The way we come to faith is repenting and believing the gospel. The way that we grow in our faith is, is repenting and believing the gospel. Thirdly, Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our sanctification. Um, I can't spend too much time on here. There's two words repeated in verse 6. That's also repeated in verse 7, and they're in him. And we would call that, theologically, our union with Jesus. In fact, we see it so much in Scripture that we just glance over it, not knowing that Paul is talking about you are united in union with Jesus. And that is the source of your sanctification. Union is, is, is simply this. It's like a marriage. It's the legal declaration that you sign that makes you marry. But it's also the communion that you experience in fellowship with your spouse if you're married. And so in union with Jesus, we get this neat semblance of, of, of being legally righteous because we get it from him. But also being in communion with, with God because Jesus was sanctified by what he suffered. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Hebrews 13, 12. That Jesus was sanctified through what? He suffered. Now, I hate to tell you what that means. That means you've been called to suffer. Suffering is part of the character-building process in your life. Get ready. It's coming. If you ain't suffered yet, it's coming. Lastly, sanctification depends on means. This is not rocket science. It's not magic. It doesn't happen effortlessly. I know I've made it seem like God does it all, but it's, it's God, but it's also you also partnering with him. Regeneration and justification are God's work alone, without your help. God, however, gives means. He gives us means, ways that we can accomplish sanctification. What are those? Worship. Okay, Worship, not just lifting our hands and, and, and worship to God as the community of, of, of saints, but like Romans 12 says, that we live our lives as a, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, which is the least, the, the reasonable service that we can give to him. Our lives are this, this worship song that, be, that are being played from the morning we get up, time we get up in the morning, all the way to the end of the day. Sanctification includes the word of God. It includes suffering, I said it before, and community. God gave you your family, if you're married, your, your, your wife, and your kids, so they can be tools of sanctification in your life. And my, 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 mine are doing a good job. Yes, he, he, I didn't know I had anger until I had kids. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay. And, and it wasn't Jonathan that brought about the anger. He was, God used him to bring out something that was already there so I would see it so that through the circumstances of my life, I would realize those pressure points where God needs to, he needs to change my character. And then the process begins. I'm still going through. Y'all pray for me. <laughs> Lastly, one of the means of sanctification are our sacraments, our ordinances, those things that we uh, use as symbols of God and his gospel. Baptism, 
and the Lord's Supper. So today, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And it's a demonstration of the gospel, but it's also a means that God uses to sanctify us. And so when we take communion today, don't, don't treat it like a ritual where we're just taking a piece of bread, dipping it in juice, and eating it to nourish your body. It's more than that. It's a symbol that God gave us to say that he's working in us and through us to make us more like him. God gave us this symbol of, of Jesus' broken body, his body that incurred pain for you, that you might remember and worship him. And he gave us this symbol of, of wine to show us that his blood, the blood of God, was spilled on a cross. Not because he had to, because he was obedient to the Father. And it's a blood that ushers us into a new covenant and forgive us of our sins. And so as you take communion today, remember the gospel, remember Jesus, that you're being sanctified because he's sanctified through suffering. Let's pray. Lord, life is harder than we die. Someone said that. Let it not be said of us that we are people that waste this time between the continuum of point A to point B. God, let us make the most of it God, I pray that we wouldn't be those introspective, navel-gazing kind of people that wallow in the despair of when we're not changing. Lord, help me, I'm not changing. Help us, Lord, not also to be those people that would be solution seekers, that, that would just go from thing to thing, just trying to change ourselves. We can't change a thing. God, true change comes from the inside out, and it has to happen. It has to start with you, and it finishes with you. So God, change us. Change us in this process of sanctification. May the, may the faith that justifies us be also the faith that, that sanctifies us. May the gospel that brings us into the kingdom also be that gospel that grows us. Help us to get that. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. We pray that in Jesus' name.